Welcome to episode 15 of Speaking Up. This is a podcast about people standing up for the truth, stepping up on the issues of the day, and speaking up when it matters most. I'm your host, Miles Taylor, and we are doing this on Call-In, a social podcasting app that allows us to take questions from listeners. Today, we have a guest with us who's very much at the forefront of speaking up on a crucial issue, and that is the state of our politics, how and whether to disrupt it. That is Lee Drutman. He is senior fellow at the New America Foundation. He is also the best-selling author of Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, the case for multi-party democracy in America. Lee, welcome to the program. It is a real pleasure to be having this conversation with you, Miles. Likewise, my friend. And I actually want to lead off with something I saw in the news yesterday, which was a very interesting poll from uh, Harvard, I believe, that asked Americans whether they would support a third party candidate if we see a rematch between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And it was very interesting. I think the I think the poll found that 58 percent of Americans, a clear majority of Americans would want to see and potentially vote for a third party candidate. What do you what do you make of that? Well, it's consistent with polling that suggests that most people want a third option or a fourth or a fifth option in our politics. Uh, And it's consistent with the fact that a lot of people don't like Biden. A lot of people don't like Trump. A lot of people don't really like either. Uh, yeah, but the challenge, of course, is that particularly at the presidential level, you know, an independent is going to be uh, a potential spoiler. And it's really hard for a third party candidate to to do better than either of the two. Uh, and you know, it's it's also not clear that all those independents would would want all the same uh, uh, person to run, right? I mean, that's like, I mean, independents are kind of all over the map. So I, I think, I think there's a challenge there. I think what it tells us is that there's cl- clearly frustration with the two party system and the, the sort of, uh, titular leaders of our two major parties. Uh, but uh, translating that into, into more options is a, a very difficult, uh, challenge. Well, tell us about that underlying thesis, and, and we can get into what's happening in the moment in the state of our politics, but you wrote what I think is the definitive book on this. You have been easily in the top three scholars in the country on this subject in recent years, looking at American attitudes towards the political system, towards the two major parties. What has changed in these numbers over the years, because I think the conventional wisdom in politics is that America is a two party system and that's just the way it's been for more than a hundred years. But you've noticed something very interesting happening in the data and with the political marketplace. Tell us about it. Well, I would, first of all, I would challenge that, that, that idea that America has, has always been a two party system. I think that there's the myth of the two party system, but in reality, you know, 
the the thing that has made American politics work as more or less a two-party system is the fact that for most of our political history, we had vibrant third parties that would challenge the two major parties when they weren't addressing the issues of the day. And they uh, were, I think, the essential disruptors uh, of, of stasis and, and scleroticism in the party system. And over recent decades, it's become much harder for third parties to enter politics for a number of reasons, uh, as the parties have grown further and further apart. Uh, but also the two parties until somewhat recently used to contain multitudes. I mean, I would argue that we really had a four party system for you know a, a while in the, the 20th century with liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats. And that's what made the system work. So over the last two decades, we've and particularly the last, you know, I'd say since 2010, we've really had for the first time in our political history a genuine two-party system in which the two parties really stand for very different visions of America, represent very different geographies and cultural identities. And this has been our moment of intense polarization and escalating polarization, the, the doom loop. And it's precisely in this moment in which we've seen continued uh, de-affiliation from the major parties. I mean, this has been going on for a while, but more and more Americans are saying, you know, look, neither of these parties represent me. I don't really want to be associated with them. You give me a binary choice, I'll vote for one of the two, but I, I want something more. And an increasing uh, number of voters who say, you know, do we need more than two parties? Absolutely. You know, we, we've now had, uh, you, know, uh, you know, essentially two presidents in a row whose approval ratings are going to basically be underwater for almost their entire presidency, and Obama's were up and down, uh, but also that their numbers are basically flat, that you know, there's nobody who is evaluating these candidates, you know, and, and open to being persuaded. I mean, every, everybody is locked into one or the other two camps uh, in terms of, of how they understand the world, but they're also really dissatisfied with having only one other option that seems really terrible to them. So it's it's kind of it, there's a there's a level of complexity here in these attitudes that's, you know, it's it's not that you know people are going to vote for a third party candidate given the polarized stakes of our uh politics because they 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 would rather have the less bad option than the terrible option. But they're also very dissatisfied with only having two options. So you know, th this is a challenge. And I think I think there's a tendency to focus straight to the presidential level, whereas really the, the, the real opportunities are at the, you know, the congressional level and at the state and local level. Uh, well, take us uh into some of those numbers. I mean, that 50% number is very interesting or roughly 50% that, you know, half of the country now defines themselves as political independence and in a relatively low watermark define themselves as Democrats or Republicans. And that's gone up and down, but roughly it's about 25% say they are Republicans, about 25% say they're Democrats. And now half the country says they are independents. I mean, it strikes me that, you know, if you were looking at any other marketplace and half of the consumers said they don't like either choice on the shelves, it would be a real opportunity for entrepreneurs to rush in and create new choices. Why do you think that hasn't happened yet? Why haven't there been 
entre entrepreneurial folks in the political community rushing in to try to satisfy those 50% of unsatisfied customers? Well, I mean, there, there's two reasons. One is because, you know, the, the, despite m many people uh, seeing themselves as independents, they, they don't they, they don't form a coherent, you know, demand, right? I mean, they're, they're sort of all over the map. And what they're frustrated with is the state of our politics and the lack of choices. But they, there's not a lot else that they would agree on. I mean, there are there are people who are, you know, all really all over the ideological and issue space map in that sense. Um, but the so that's that's part of the challenge. So what you really need is five or six parties to represent that. And the second reason is our electoral institutions, our single winner. Uh, elections, which render third parties as spoilers and wasted votes. Uh, and given the, the high stakes of every election, you know, in which people, despite, you know, not liking either of the options, do see a difference, right? You know, you might, you might think the, uh, the Republicans are horrible, but you also think the Democrats are horrible, but maybe the Democrats are a little less horrible than the Republicans. So you're going to vote for for a Democrat, given that you don't want the Republicans to win or or vice versa. But what I think is is the, the missing opportunity here. Uh, and this is something that we talk about Evan McMullen's race in Utah is that most of this country is right now, you know, locked up for one or the other two major parties. So rather than having a two-party system, we really have two one-party systems. And both of those one-party systems are ripe for disruption, right? So if it's Mike Lee versus a Democrat in Utah, Democrat, you know, has the, the shot of a, you know, a snowball, you know, approaching the, the, the sun. Uh, but if, you know, if Democrats are willing to stand down, which they were on this this past weekend, uh, you know, Evan McMullen is a real shot. Now, there's a lot of places where Republicans, you know, have that two thirds majority in registration. I think maybe it's even higher in, in Utah. Uh, but you know, so the Democrats don't have, you know, I'm just going to elect a Democrat in those places, those districts, those states. But, you know, a you know pragmatic compromise oriented candidate like Evan McMullen has a real shot. And now that that's a that, that's a reproducible play. Uh, uh, the, the other thing in, in, in close districts, and I, I've become a real enthusiast of, of fusion balloting, is if we could do that. It's legal in a few states right now. Interestingly, Republicans in South Carolina just banned it. Uh, so they must see it as a threat, because why, why would they suddenly decide to ban it? Uh, but if you if you allow for multiple balloting, like if there were a moderate party or a you know forward party or you know whatever that could uh, endorse candidates that are pragmatic, compromise oriented, you know, not 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 solidly in in you know partisan Democrats or partisan Republicans, they would that would be the deciding voting block in closed districts. So, you, you know, you can think of these as the, as the complementary strategy, what, you know, what Evan McMullen is doing in Utah is basically informal fusion. Democrats are endorsing him, but because there's no actual fusion, they're basically giving up their ballot line and throwing their resources at him. Uh, and, you know, and that, and that works in, in Utah and men probably would work in many other places, but, you know, you take a close competitive district like, you know, 
Tom Malinowski's in in New Jersey. You know, Malinowski is a compromise-oriented Democrat uh, running in a slightly Republican district. A lot of Republicans in that district are just going to vote for the Republican candidate. But there there are a number of you know Republicans who are concerned about the Republican Party, but still you know you know want to. Well, I don't want to vote for the Democratic Party because being a Republican is part of their identity. If they can vote on a third party line for Malinowski, you know, they, they don't have to compromise their identity and they can also send a, a signal. So the challenge is that, you know, th- there's not one party out there that would represent all the unaffiliated independent voters. Uh, and there, there's no way in our under our current voting rules uh, for you know, for third parties to organize without being spoilers, uh, unless there's either informal fusion or formal fusion uh, or proportional representation. Well, take me into, before we get into some of the structural ways that we may be able to, you know, reform the American system and that Silicon Valley billionaires are investing in, there's a ton of money going into trying to reform the democratic system to tap into those 50% of Americans who call themselves independents who want another choice. Before we do that, I'm curious to get your perspective on that 50% because it's not a monolithic group. Right. It's not one group that could be in one tribe. And in fact, for listeners who haven't seen it, Lee put a very, very popular uh, uh, tool on the New York Times website that allowed you to go sort of define where you would fit if there was multiple new parties in America. Tell us a little bit about that, Lee. And, and if the, the system was fully free in this country, uh, w- what would that mix of multiple parties look like based on your assessment of the electorate? Right. So I, I envisioned a, a six party system uh, in that New York Times quiz. And you can, you know, if you search it, search it up. You will. Uh, you can look for. Yeah. You know, what. What if the. What if the U.S. had. What if America had six political parties? Um, New York Times, and you know, it's a. It's a fun little quiz, and you know, I, I envisioned a, a two-dimensional space, and you know, based on, you know, admittedly some some arbitrary decisions, but also you know, a fair amount of statistical analysis. Uh, you know, I, I thought, well, you know, maybe six parties would be enough, and you know, you'd have you know, parties along a two-dimensional space. You know, you'd have. You know, some parties that are, you know, you sort of sort of at the, at the polls, you'd have a, you know, very progressive, you know, left party, you know, think of the Justice Democrats or AOC, you know, and, and you'd have a very, you know, traditional conservative party. You'd have a more, you know, socially liberal conservative party and you'd have a kind of GOP populist party. You'd have a center, you know, centrist democratic party. And I think you'd have something more of a, you know, traditional labor democratic party. It's a little bit more conservative on some of the social issues, but pretty populist on some of the economic issues. But you know, the, the thing is, until you unleash those parties, it, it's it's hard to, to know exactly where things would shake out because m- most people don't have really strongly felt political ideologies. They have identities, they have partisan affiliations. And until you, until you offer those, you know, identities, people don't know how to process politics, right? You know, people look to various, you know, magazines or journals or podcasts or, 
or or media elites to kind of help them figure out politics. I mean, most of us are, are have other things to do with our time. Where you and I are the weird ones, Miles, uh, that we actually spend a lot of time thinking about this. Uh, we are but, definitely the weird ones for a lot of reasons, Lee. But yes, <laughs> continue. <laughs> but I mean, th- this is why political parties are so important as institutions in American democracy is that they give people a sense of identity. They, they put together you know, different policy proposals. They stitch together various interests in society and they, they form something that's coherent and they uh, make politics make sense. Now, you know, two, two is too few. Uh, it puts everything in a binary, uh, but I think five or six is probably the optimal number of parties, and that's you know ba- based on considerable comparative uh, political science research. Because yeah, the, the U.S. speaking of weird, the U.S. is totally weird that we're the only advanced democracy that has just two parties, and you could argue the British system is basically a two-party system. Uh, but you know the, the U.S. is the most binary party system of any advanced democracy. Most countries have multiple parties. That that is the norm. It's also the norm to have proportional representation. Uh, so, like, we're, we're we're the ones who are doing it weird. Uh, <laughs> and and I yeah you know, I think there's you know a, a very good reason to change the system because what we're doing is clearly not working, and it's creating us into uh, you know. It, a constitutional crisis and and you know potential democratic collapse if we don't correct course. Well, and and you know it's that sounds like hyperbole, but the numbers are really pretty terrifying. And Lee, you and I had a conversation the other night with uh, Jonathan Haidt, uh, an author who's like you've been writing about these issues for quite some time, and he wrote a book a decade ago called The Righteous Mind uh, about why Americans are and people in general are inherently politically tribal. And he had a very recent article in The Atlantic uh, that was uh, cleverly titled, Why the Past 10 Years in American Politics Have Been Uniquely Stupid. And he talked a lot about how social media has been deeply, deeply dividing us. But I think the big takeaway from that article was if people think it's bad, they ain't seen nothing yet, that the division is only increasing. Uh, what's your perspective on that? Is there a uh, reason for optimism in the numbers or do you see political polarization getting worse and worse and worse until we see some of these political reforms as a pressure relief valve, if you will? Well, yeah, I, I think, oh, I, I mean, the title of my book is, is, is breaking the two party doom loop. So I clearly see things getting worse and worse. And, you know, since I've, published the book a little over, you know, I guess two and a half years ago, things have definitely gotten doomier and loopier. Now, I, I, I tend to, to not put as much importance on social media as many others do. I tend to be a little skeptical that social media is really the problem. I mostly see it as, a, as an amplifier uh, of of existing underlying problems and and you know, for for evidence of that I'd point to the fact that social media is everywhere in Western democracies and the U S is not alone in social media consumption but U uh, S politics seem to have gone uh, uniquely batty so there has to be something that's distinct about American politics uh, otherwise we would see social media destroying politics everywhere. Uh, 
so you know, I, I think we are clearly in a moment of disruption, of disintegration. Uh, but it, I think there, there are also some causes for optimism. And I, I wrote a piece recently that came out with the Niskanen Center called uh, How Democracies Revive, in which I make a case that, you know, actually we should view this as the turning towards a moment of optimism precisely because there's so much pessimism that if there, if we weren't as pessimistic and didn't see the crisis coming and weren't talking about the crisis, as I felt like we weren't doing enough, even in the, in the Trump years, because there was just this sense that, oh, well, Trump will be gone and then we'll just go back to normal. But now after January 6th and after seeing the Republican Party's reaction to January 6th and, and Trump's continued influence in the party, you know, I, I think there's a real collective sense that we are on, on a path that is taking us right off the cliff. Uh, and if we don't we don't correct course soon, we will, you know, wind up shattered and bloodied and, you know, who, who knows what will be left of us as a collective society. Uh, but it's a pretty picture there, Lee. <laughs> but I think there's enough energy uh, and enough understanding of, of where we're headed that you know, we have to we can avert course. Uh, now, that won't be easy because there's a lot of momentum. I mean, the problem with the, the, the doom loop is it's, you know, it's kind of a flywheel and that it builds up momentum and builds upon itself. So it will take uh, you know, considerable resources to, 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 to divert that and break that. And this is, this is why we have to be super intentional and thoughtful about how we do that, because you know, if we rely on you know, sort of wish fulfillment about, you know, what, what we think independent voters are or, or, you know, what we think voters will do uh, without really understanding voter psychology and the, the institutions and grooves of American democracy. You know, we are going to make some, you know, I think deadly mistakes at this point. Uh, so we really need to be thoughtful in this moment. But, I, I you know, I'm encouraged that you know, we are having these conversations and we are being thoughtful and intentional and, you know, using the pressure points in our political institutional structure to, to start to make changes in the right direction rather than wishing our system were something different. Uh, you know, we have to, to, to confront the reality of where we are uh, and not, not, uh, not, not make, make, you know, if wishes were fishes, you know, we, we'd all be, uh, we'd all be kings, right? Uh, but, <laughs> but, you know, on the social media point, you know, on the, the fracture point, you know, I think, I think we are clearly in a moment of, of, of disintegration. And, you know, I, I think that's okay. Like, I, I'm not as, I'm not as concerned about that, because I think with or without social media, these same forces would be happening. In some ways, social media may accelerate it to a point where we're actually clearing away you know, some of the, 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 the accumulated uh, chaos and garbage that will actually allow us to build something more quickly uh, in response. But I mean, the, the challenge in this moment is that there are a lot of people who want to tear the system down and, and you know, perhaps for good reason, right? I mean, we, we, we can't go into this and, say, and saying, oh, well, you know, we, we just got to get back to the old system because frankly, the old system wasn't working that well and it wasn't working for a lot of people. And there is real frustration that elites in this country uh, are, you know, making billions upon billions of dollars. And most people are, are, you know, a lot of people are struggling there. There is, you know, concern about, you know, long histories of injustice in this country. Uh, there is concern 
that parts of this country that are, you know, are not in the cities are being left behind and being crushed by opioid epidemics and, and seeing their towns crumbling. So there is there, there is real concern that the system has not responded to. So we have to take that seriously as we try to build something new and say that democracy is worthwhile engaging in. I mean, you know, the, the, the simple, this is you know, how demagogues rise and emerge is to say, you know, democracy is not working. You know, I alone can fix it. And you know, when people feel desperate and frustrated, you know, it's easy to, to turn to that. And it's our challenge to say, no, we can make the system work. We acknowledge that the system in the past didn't work as well as it should, and we want to build something new, something that you know, draws on the strengths of American pluralism and you know the, the strength of uh, American the, the American entrepreneurial spirit and the, the, the wealth and knowledge inherent in our country, and you know build something bigger and better for the future. Right? We've got to be future oriented. Well, I, you know, I, Lee, I. I, uh, I titled this episode, The Most Important Political Race in America, not because we're going to spend the whole time talking about Evan McMullen's race for the U.S. Senate in Utah, but it's a very interesting race at the moment because it symbolizes some of the things that you're talking about. As we noted at the top end, the Democratic Party has agreed to join Evan's coalition. So the Democrats are not going to nominate someone for the U.S. Senate from Utah. They're going to stand behind an, an independent candidate. Um, Mike Lee, of course, is the sitting Republican senator. This is a very interesting Democratic experiment and sort of, a, I would say, a halfway point between the picture you've painted of a future where if there are structural reforms to American democracy that make it easier for new parties to emerge and compete, somewhere between now and then, there's going to have to be a way to release the pressure and yep. be able to satisfy independent voters. And so, you know, some of us have called this concept coalition campaigning, where you're, you're getting, you know, just like coalition governing in foreign countries where different parties agree to form a government together. We've got Democrats and independents teaming up to go beat a Republican. Do you see that as a bridge to a future where there are democratic reforms? And is, that, is this a repeatable experiment in other places around the country? A absolutely to, to yes with these. I, I, I do agree that this is the most important uh, political race in America in 2022. I think if if Evan McMullen can win this race, uh, it sends a powerful signal uh, that, that that you can do this. And it is totally repeatable. I mean, there, there are you know, roughly you know, 80 percent of congressional races in which, you know, there's no shot in hell that, that either party is going to win. And, you know, a lot of these insurrectionist Republicans, Jen, who, who election denier, January 6th apologist Republicans, uh, you know, Trump, Trump bootlicker Republicans are are in these super safe seats. And, you know, I mean, you can and you know, some of them might well win their primary, uh, e even if there's a challenger, because they're the incumbent and primaries are low turnout events. You know, and so that's regardless of whether they're open or closed or whatever. I mean, the, mucking around in primary reform is is just you know that that's fool's gold, uh, as far as I'm concerned. But you know what, you know what Evans doing? You know, you could 
do you do that in a lot of districts where these, you know, that are 65 percent Republican where, you know, know, Lauren Boebert or, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene or Madison Cawthon or Paul Ghost or any of these, these, you know, absolutely wacko, you know, far right uh, liberals, you know, but could very well elect a, you know, a reasonable, pragmatic, moderate, you know, Republican, you know, type candidate uh, if Democrats stand down. So it's absolutely repeatable. Uh, I mean, the challenge is then, you know, what, what it, you and and it's you know scalable enough that you could have a real center governing governing co- coalition uh, in both the House and the Senate if you do enough of these races. But then the question is, well, what does that translate into? Right, that's got to be a bridge to somewhere, and the bridge has to be towards larger structural reforms that make our system uh, uh, representative and governable and creative. Uh, you know, we, we need the innovate. I mean, we, you know, we talk about, you know, third parties as, as, you know, being, a, a you know, uh, reaching out to an unmet market. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I, I tend to be more on the side that I don't really, I'm not really, I don't really see citizens as consumers. I, I see democracy as being a much more important, um, you know, uh, repeat relationship, you know, an identity rather than just, just brands and consumers, you know, and I think the way to think about third parties is not, does not really, you know, just like serving some unmet need, but as, you know, being innovators and organizers of uh, voters who feel that the system is not working, which is frankly a lot of voters, and bringing new ideas, new policies, new innovations into politics and making politics work. Uh, politics is hard. It's about it's about compromise. It's about listening. It's about bargaining. It's about creativity. It's about, you know, coalitions. And that's, you know, and we, we don't get to, to see that in in America, you know, and it makes it hard for us to understand that that's how politics works. Instead, we think it's it's we should get everything we want. And that's, you know, I worry a little bit with the you know, sort of thinking about part, you know, consumers, because then we think about, well, we've got to fill consumer demand and give people what they want. But really, politics is about not learning to not get everything you want. Yeah, I well, well, on that same vein, Lee, there's a really interesting role for technology to play here in the disruptive aspect that we've already seen in the past 10 years, as you've talked about, and as Jonathan Heights talked about and others, we've seen technology disrupt our politics in many ways for the worse uh, and really drive up societal division and to make these numbers look pretty scary when it comes to the future and, and health of democracy. What ways do you see technology potentially facilitating some of these major democratic reforms? Um, and I, I think this is top of mind for a lot of folks because you know we've got the takeover of Twitter that was announced this week with Elon Musk reaching a deal to take the platform private, um, and he's done so in the name of wanting to re-eject what he says is greater free speech uh, into Twitter. Um, there's there's a lot politically happening in the technology space. Uh, what are the upsides for democracy reform? Well, you know, I think the challenge with technology in this moment um, you know, is that in some ways to, to, to pile on the point that I was making before uh, about gratification is that, you know, so much of of our technology is about giving us instant gratification. 
uh, you know, is, is giving us a kind of like dopamine hit in the current moment that makes us feel good and we get what we want, except that, that, that we're constantly left dissatisfied, you know, whereas politics, you know, as I said, it, it's, it's about compromise. And so much of, of how we engage in politics right now is just, you know, to, to feel superior, to feel smarter than somebody else. You know, it's, it's like, you know, it can't, can't get enough of, of those crazy uh, Republicans or those crazy Democrats, right? I mean, it's, and so part of the challenge of technology is how I think technology can enable us to uh, compromise and, and understand the limits of, of, you know, getting everything th- thing we, we want and, you know, may have parties, have historically been the teachers of that. Uh, but, you know, I think there are ways to think about, te- and, and yeah, I think we're already starting to, to, to see a little bit of this, you know, on the, the sort of, you know, slow technology movement, you know, I think the, the, a lot of the pushback against Facebook and, and, and other social media is that, you know, they're giving us too much of, we want, of what we want too fast. But there are ways to use technology to actually train us to, to you know, to, to be less, you know, immediate gratification, dopamine hit oriented, uh, you know, because it, it, it does, there, there is a way in which our psychology, you know, uh, affects politics and how we engage in politics. And, uh, you know, I think that's a real challenge of how can, you know, there are ways to do like, you know, deliberative online polling in which, you know, or, you know, d- deliberative discussion rooms. I mean, politics is, is a way of thinking together, uh, and, you know, I think we've really lost that because so much of, of technology is just about echo chambers right now. But technology could also be um, something that challenges us uh, and allows us to, to engage with new ideas that we wouldn't otherwise engage with. Uh, and, you know, to, 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 to not give us that instantaneous reward of somehow, you know, feeling better than, than the, the crazies on the other side. Talk to me a little bit, Lee, about what we're seeing in terms of political violence right now, or maybe a step shy of that, political intimidation. Uh, One of the ancillary effects of this very contentious and polarized political climate is that increasingly you have folks viewing the political system as a way that they can no longer engage, right? They think elections are stolen or rigged or the other side is corrupt. I saw a stat the other day that for the first time ever, uh, 90% of voters that are either a Democrat or Republican that were surveyed said they view the other side winning as deeply harmful to the country. 90% say if the other side wins in an election, it will harm the country. I think that's the highest that number's ever been or close to it. And so if folks feel that way, they're more inclined towards political violence. Do you worry that we're going to see episodes of political intimidation turn into actual violence here uh, if we don't undertake uh, some of these reforms that, that we're discussing? Well, absolutely. I mean, that, that, that is really the, the biggest threat. And, you know, th- that is, you know, that, that kind of rhetoric is how you win elections and how you mobilize the base. And both parties have been doing it uh, for, for a while now. And what happens is, there's there's also something else that's happening, which is a, a process of dehumanization. Uh, you know, it's it's the the other side is is not legitimate, and maybe they are not 
fully evolved either, right? They're, they're you know, somehow, you know, less than us, right? And, and this is what happens in war is, you know, there's propaganda. The other side is cockroaches, they're bugs, they're, they're insects, they're dogs, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're not, they're not as evolved. They're not as civilized as us. Right. And so it's okay. Same thing that happened in slavery. Right. Uh, so th- that's where the real danger, because once you make that psychological leap to, you know, not, not only should, do these people are going to harm our country, but they are inferior. They are less than us. They are not even fully human. So it's okay to, to, to justify uh, violence against them. Uh, the, the other thing that happens is that if you think it's such a danger that if the other side wins, it will be the end of the country, then there's no sanction for liberal anti-democratic behavior from your side. Right. And if there's no sanction uh, uh, for politicians who who just you know override uh, you know, the popular vote or change the rules or do anything, then, you know, some of them are going to do it. And they will ride to power doing that. So that is, you know, these are these are real threats. And uh, the it's really hard to get out of that mindset uh, because so much of our political media, uh, our, our political elite discourse and the campaign ads that are blasting all over the country, you know, for the next, you know, until until November and maybe beyond, you know, are just going to say how, how, you know, Democrats are evil, Republicans are evil. And you know, that. that constantly reinforces this, you know, this dehumanization, these, these negative stereotypes. Now, if you look comparatively uh, and you look at multi-party systems, there's not the same demonization uh, that happens. Now, there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, one is that when there are more than two choices, you, you can't play the lesser of two evils strategy anymore. So you just, it just, uh, it's not, there's not the same logic. And the lesser of two evils, all I, if you and I are com- campaigning election, all I have to do is bloody you up and, and talk about all the horrible things about you uh, and just, just drive your unfavorables through the roof. And then, you know, I can, I can win by default, right? I mean, we could see a Trump uh, Biden election, which nobody will be happy and it'll be all negative campaigning. Uh, in 2024, uh, and then whoever's unfavorables are, 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 you know, slightly less worse. Now, the other thing that happens in multi-party systems is that coalitions shift. So different parties go into government with each other. And so, you know, the, the enemies are not permanent, right? But what we have in our system is that Democrats and Republicans are permanent enemies. There's never going to be any alliance. Uh, so it's just, just permanent warfare. Uh, and the third, and this is may, maybe uh, the most underappreciated thing that happens in multi-party systems, is that you know if you have five or six parties, you know, you're you're going to know and going to be exposed to people uh, of of you know a bunch of different parties. But because of the geographical sorting in our country right now, you know most people have networks that are either densely democratic or densely republican uh and you know you might have one friend from the other party but you know you you don't really talk politics all that much but mostly you're surrounded by uh people who are like you and this is not just a function of social media this is much more a function of families and workplaces and communities uh, and churches i mean you know i mean whether or not i was in social media i mean i live in northwest you know washington dc 
surrounded by liberals, you know, I'm going to get strong pressure to, to stay on the, you know, the liberal progressive uh, uh, page. And if I start expressing dissent, I'm going to lose friends. Yeah. Well, I, I want to end, Lee, by asking you about uh, an effort that you've undertaken of all the different reforms out there. And there's a lot of discussions about everything from ending partisan gerrymandering, and there's been some interesting court decisions in recent weeks on that, to things like ranked choice voting, so voters actually get to rank their choices rather than uh, you know, only voting for the, the one person uh, in a race, uh, on down the list. But there is one reform that you've talked a lot about, and that is proportional representation. And this is really different than some of those other reforms that potentially require big, long-term, multi-decade efforts uh, to pass new laws in various U.S. states. Um, sounds really tempting. You could just have a, a vote of Congress to make this happen. T tell us a little bit about that. Tell us about proportional representation, uh, what it means, and potential pathways to get us there. Yeah. So I just start off by talking about gerrymandering and ranked choice voting, which have both been, you know, or, you know, anti-gerrymandering reform. You know, but both you know, have been mostly focused on single winner elections. And the problem with you know, anti-gerrymandering reform is that when Democrats and Republicans live in different places, it's really hard to, to draw uh, districted maps that are competitive, except for a few districts. And it's also hard to make those maps fair when Democrats are overly concentrated in cities. And if you try to make them fair, you're going to wind up with a lot of districts that are not competitive. So within the single member district context, it's really hard to draw maps that are fair in that they're both fair to parties and they're broadly competitive. It's practically impossible right now. Um, you know, ranked choice voting has some nice properties. Uh, I mean, I, I like it, but it's, you know, I, I've done a big study on it and, and the effects are pretty marginal within single member districts. Now, proportional representation would take us to multi-member districts uh, in which seats would be allocated proportionally. So if you, if your party, if one party gets 40% of the votes in a five member district, that party gets 40% of the seats, two seats, another party gets 40% of the vote, uh, party gets two seats and another party gets 20% of the votes, that party gets one seat. So now instead of needing so, to so get... let's one, one quick question, Lee, let's talk about that practically. If you could give us a fake example of where this could be set up, you know, let's say the state of Indiana, what would that look like in practice for All right. Americans? So, so you know Indiana better than I do. How many, how many dis congressional districts are there in Indiana? It's a, it's a uh, 13 congressional districts. 13 congressional districts. Okay. Oh, that's, that's more than I thought. Uh, I think that's the case unless it's, uh, unless it's gone down. Oh, all right. Uh, I, I nope. Nope. Not, I'm, I'm totally wrong about Indiana. We, we, we've got nine. <laughs> okay. All right. Anyway. Okay. So, so you have nine congressional districts. So now uh, imagine if instead of having nine congressional districts, uh, you had one statewide district that elected nine members proportionally. So you know, do, do voters in Indiana really fall into two parties or, you know, maybe it's a third, a third, a third or, you know, and the challenge is, you know, so you've got, I assume Indianapolis is pretty Democratic and the rest of the state is is pretty Republican. Uh, is, right. that, is that right? Yeah. OK. Yeah. Um, and, and with a, with a very blue pocket up in the north western part of the state close to chicago but otherwise a red chicago, state right, with, with two like, blue dots 
That's like Gary, Indiana. Yeah. 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 All right. Uh, right. So now, okay. So, so there's, you know, but, but those states, those parts aren't, aren't entirely blue. There are some Republicans who live in, in Indianapolis, I'm sure. Uh, maybe less than Gary. Uh, and, you know, there are some Democrats who live in, in the, in the spaces in between and, you know, and, and Democrats are in all of one flavor and Republicans are in all of one flavor. So the idea is that, you know, people everywhere should be able to vote for somebody who represents them uh, and actually have a connection to that person and have their vote matter. I mean, how many can, of those nine districts, how many are competitive right now where people's votes matter? Uh, it's it's probably one point five. <laughs> one point. Right. It's okay. Probably, so so for the other number. Yeah. Right. Now imagine if if your vote if you didn't have to live in one of the in in one of those one point five districts in order to have your vote matter, but your vote mattered wherever you lived in the state, and you you could vote for the candidate or the party that represents you best. So now you have a delegation uh, from from Indiana. That you know is maybe maybe a you know a few progressive maybe one progressive Democrat you know some moderate Democrats some moderate Republicans some far right Republicans you know now 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 the state is much better represented uh, and every vote in the state matters so you're going to get higher voter engagement because you don't have to live in one of those competitive districts for your vote to matter and you know what the parties are now going to be looking around the state and saying well you know. N- n- we we want to maximize our vote share. Uh, so we're going to actually go out and talk to voters and set up offices and engage with people and hear what they have to say and what their concerns are and and what are the issues that that they're thinking about rather than just taking their votes for granted because, you know, it's a Republican district. So, you know, my incumbent's going to win and none of these people here are ever going to vote for the Democratic Party. So that that totally changes the idea of representation uh, in this country. It, it breaks the binary. And the other thing it does, and we talked about this before, is the importance of, of compromise. So now in Congress, not one party is going to have a majority. Uh, you're going to have to form a coalition. So you change this idea that, oh, if only our side can get the majority, we're going to dominate and crush the other side too. Oh, no. Well, uh, our, my party represents, you know, core of the electorate. Okay, so we need to build a coalition with another party. That's how you do politics. So now politics is not about my side winning or losing. Uh, it's about electing people who represent my values, uh, who, you know, speak to my concerns. And then, you know, they they bargain on behalf of me. Uh, but my side is not going to dominate. I'm not going to crush your side. Your side's not going to crush my side. And and that's a very different way of thinking about politics than we think about it now, which is that, you know, nobody's vote matters except for in a handful of districts. Uh, we send all our money there. We, we are engaged in this constant apocalyptic rhetoric in which our side has to crush the other side, can't trust the other side. And uh, it's no wonder that we're careening into a constitutional crisis. Well, Lee, let me close by asking you a fun question, which is you've thought a lot about uh, the future potential of a multi-party American democracy, more than just the Democrats and Republicans. Do you have a favorite mascot for a future American third party? Is there a, is there an animal or a creature that stands out to you that would be a particularly good mascot? Uh, maybe the wise owl. Uh, 
That's that's a good one. That's a good one. I like I like the owl. What would the party's name be? You have named some of these parties in a sense in the New York Times quiz. I, but uh, I don't know what the name would be. I mean, we should have a contest. Um, Twitter, Twitter, Twitter contest. Name name your new party. Uh, that's the, right. The winner, you know, the winner gets uh, gets a gets a, a, a you know a, the the original owl mascot cut or something there you go we'll we'll figure something out on that front lee very grateful to have you on the program i do encourage folks not only to check out your book but also to follow your efforts at fix our house the effort that you have launched on proportional representation uh lee drutman senior fellow at new america really grateful to have you today yeah thank you miles glad to glad to be in this fight with you and, and very grateful for everyone who tuned in. You can join us again this week for a very different conversation about disruption with one of the leaders in the cannabis industry. That's right. One of the leaders in the cannabis industry, a company called Can. We'll be talking to the CEO this week. Tune in for that conversation, which is sure to be interesting. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Speaking Up, and we'll talk soon.